Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. I'm Grant Percet. We're back again this week with the second part of our interview with Dr. Craig Evans about the incredible discovery of a 12th Qumran cave. You might have heard last week on our first part of our interview with him about this recent discovery that relates to the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you are a Christian, an apologist, a historian, or all the above, this was undoubtedly very exciting news for you. And we were fortunate enough to be able to interview one of the top names in the world on this topic. So Dr. Evans was on the show last week. If you missed that, go to godsolutionshow.com. Again, godsolutionshow.com to get that interview under the past shows tab. You can find out more about Craig Evans at Craig A. Evans, that's C-R-A-I-G-A-E-V-A-N-S.com, CraigAEvans.com. I would also encourage you to pick up his book, The Holman Quick Source Guide to the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's The Holman Quick Source Guide to the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can get it at Amazon or wherever. That's his book on the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of his books on the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think he's written 30 or 40 other books. So definitely check out some of his other stuff as well. He's a world-renowned and respected author, scholar, apologist, and you are going to love what he has to say about this new Dead Sea Scroll find today, this 12th Qumran cave. Anyway, I'm so excited. Let's get right back to the second part of our interview with Craig Evans. Dr. Evans, going back to what you said about the future, I mean, what next? Are we we're looking for cave 13, maybe 14, 15? Is that the, that's the hope here, right? Well, of course, uh, I, I, I've been told that there's one cave that looks, it, it looks like a depression where the, there's been a cave-in from long ago, that it looks like it is a cave that the mouth has collapsed, and <clears throat> so there's going to be an excavation there. There's also, I've heard, the possibility of yet another cave like that, so we could be talking about a cave 14 as well. Who knows? Uh, the other thing, too, is caves, there are lots of caves. There are hundreds of caves. I've seen many. I've crawled in many, hundreds and hundreds of caves uh, within a radius of just two or three miles of Qumran. Uh, and some caves are used by different people at later times. Many, many caves were never used by anybody, and they're simply empty. And so that's what makes it so daunting it is like looking for the proverbial needle in the haystack, only it's not a stack of hay, it's a stack of caves. And, when, and if, if you might think, well, what's so hard about that, just walk in and out of them? Hey, listen, you're talking about cliffs. You're talking about very difficult, even dangerous to get to. You're using ropes and pitons in some cases. It's not easy. And so, and it's hot. Uh, you know, even in the winter, that's why they did the digging last month in the winter time so that it would be uh, bearable. So it's hard work, difficult work, and you could explore 50 caves and not come up with one thing. And, uh, it, and that's a lot of work to have nothing to show for it. Well, uh, Randall Price, to his credit, 
there was something about Cave 53 back in the 1993 Operation Scroll that told him that was a cave worth exploring. So he went to the trouble of getting a permit and assembling a team. He had a couple of colleagues from Hebrew University that participated with him. A bunch of volunteers were recruited, and it paid off. And they found uh, six broken jars. They found the leather scraps, the piece of papyrus. They found the linen wrap. They even found some Neolithic remains, which have value, too, of course. And so it, it is a historic find, and it will go in the record books. It forces us to change everything we've been saying about Qumran. We don't speak of 11 caves anymore. It's 12. But at the same time, it also makes us realize, hey, if there's a cave 12, there might be a cave 13, too. So the story continues. Wonderful. So let me veer off topic and ask you a couple questions. I'm dying to get your thoughts on them. The last time that we talked on the radio, you told me about this uh, fragment of Mark that the Green Scholar Initiative had been working on and that it potentially dated to the first century and that it might be kind of released to the public with the, kind of to coincide with the opening of the Museum of the Bible, if I remember correctly. Can you elaborate on that or any of those other fragments, or do you got to keep that under wraps right now? Well, I can elaborate on it, uh, probably not as much as you and your listeners were hoping, <laughs> but uh, I'm holding in my hand right now, it came out just a couple of months ago, it's called Dead Sea Scrolls Fragments in the Museum Collection, edited by Emmanuel Tove, Kip Davis, and Robert Duke. Now, what is significant about this book in my hand is that it's the first publication of the Museum of the Bible. It's in a series called Publications of Museum of the Bible, Volume Number 1. Now, I mention it because we will expect more volumes in this series to come out, and that will include the Greek fragments that relate to the New Testament. Three of these Greek fragments have already been announced in a journal called Early Christianity by a German professor, and three of them were mentioned, and uh, two of them date to the third century, which is old, by the way. So these, these concerned two of Paul's letters and the book of Hebrews. So that's just the first, you might say, the opening salvo of what all is to come. I hope within... A later time in this year to hold in my hand another volume, uh, volume number two. I hope it comes out in 2017, which will talk about the Greek fragments, both relating to the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hope to have those in my hand. And then maybe, finally, we'll have information on the fragment of the Gospel of Mark. Now, what I will tell you about Mark is this. I don't have much to add. I don't know what part of Mark we're talking about that hasn't been disclosed it is still very secret but uh, the I've heard that it was late first century then I heard last year that they had changed their mind and it was second century and now I hear they might be changing their mind again and go back to the late first century date now that would just be astounding now by the way any fragment of mark dating to the second century is amazing and so we don't want to lose sight of that. We have a handful, maybe as many as 10 fragments of the Greek New Testament that date to the second century. And that's quite astonishing. And if we have a Mark fragment that dates to the second century, well, that's big news, too. 
But if it turns out it really is late first century, then that will be a record breaker to be sure. So anyway, I don't have any more to say on that. I'm not real sure why all the delays, but at least the uh, fragments of the scrolls in the Museum of the Bible Collection, those fragments have now been published. And I am told in the same series they're working on the Greek fragments, and that will be forthcoming. So let's do a show together when that book comes out, and we'll talk about the Greek fragments at that time. Can I cannot wait. Now, i got to ask you another question about Bart Ehrman. And uh, you've debated him publicly, and we've talked about him before. He recently wrote Jesus Before the Gospels, all right? And in that, he talks about how oral tradition shaped the New Testament stories about Jesus and what we as Christians came to believe was true about Jesus. Uh, Do you have any comments on this new theory? I know the last new theory he had about the resurrection, you uh, absolutely obliterated when we talked about it. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this one. Well, uh, I, I am personally acquainted with Bart Ehrman, and uh, I'm on very friendly terms with him. I, uh, you know, uh, he shows me respect. I show him respect. I uh, don't agree with where he's going on this. I do understand what he's talking about. The Jesus story circulated orally in the first place before things were written down. And even when the first gospel is written down, the oral tradition remains very much alive uh, and possibly influencing uh, the second and the third synoptic gospels and so on. And the oral tradition remains very much alive on into the second century, even after the four gospels are circulating and being read. But I have reasons to believe, based on my study of ancient pedagogy, that is how people taught and how people were expected to learn, also on the basis of ancient historiography, that is how history was written, how biographies were written, we have every reason to believe that the authentic words of Jesus, the authentic deeds of Jesus are preserved in these four first century gospels. I say that because we have multiple attestation, and that means we have two or more sources attesting many of the things Jesus said and did. So it isn't just the opinion of one guy who might have got it wrong, but two or more sources that attest things that he said and did. We have verisimilitude, which means that what the Gospels tell us Jesus said and did actually agrees with the culture of the time, as shown by archaeology and other historical sources. So when you have those two factors, there are others involving language, linguistics, and so forth. But when you have that kind of data that coincides and agrees and supports and coheres, there is no reason to think, no evidence at all, for thinking that early Christians were were creating fictions making up stuff that Jesus actually didn't say or telling stories about things that didn't happen, partly because the Gospels are simply too early. There would be too many people still alive who know, well, he didn't say that. He didn't do that. And so the other thing that tells me that is you have Paul in his writings. He likes to quote Jesus or allude to his teaching from time to time. But notice what he says. He'll say, the Lord says, or in another place he'll say, well, not the Lord, but this is my opinion, and I think it has weight. 
he clearly makes a distinction between what Jesus says and what he says. So if Paul filled by the Holy Spirit, and Paul has no doubt about that, he says, look, I have the Holy Spirit, I know what I'm talking about, but even so, he still makes a distinction between words uttered by Jesus and then truth he believes the Holy Spirit has revealed to him. And I find that fascinating. So there's no truth to the idea that the early church was careless and didn't make any distinction between what historical Jesus said on the one hand and what they think the Spirit of Jesus is saying through Christian leaders, prophets, and teachers of a later time. So for all of these factors combined, I have very high confidence and high regard for the veracity, the truthfulness, and accuracy of the New Testament Gospels. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution Show. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. We recently, in the last few weeks, have interviewed Dr. Uh, Craig Blomberg about his new book, The Historical Reliability of the New Testament, and why we can trust the New Testament, and also Dr. Richard Bauckham about his upcoming 10th anniversary edition of Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, about some of the eyewitness testimony in the New Testament. Those are uh, a couple strands that, that kind of confirm with what Dr. Evans is saying here. We can trust the New Testament. Now, do you think, and you might not want to say this, because I know that you're a scholar and you respect uh, Ehrman and others like him. It seems like he's maybe... Uh, taking his presupposition and, and, and importing it into his conclusion, like he does maybe with the resurrection, maybe grasping at straws, trying to prove a point that might not be there. Is, is he making something out of nothing here? Is he trying to force the data to, to fit this anti-supernatural bias? Well, I, I think so. And, and again, being fair to him, I, I think his reasoning would go like this. He's lost his faith, his Christian faith, which means he doesn't regard Jesus then as particularly special. He is agnostic, as he will say. He, he, he will say that he's not really an atheist because how can anyone really say there is no God? And, and of course, I think there he's being wise. Uh, intellectually, there's really no grounds at all for anyone to be an atheist. So atheists really are agnostics. They just don't know it or don't realize that they should be agnostic. Anybody can say, gee, I don't know if God is out there, okay. But to make a dogmatic assertion that you know that God isn't there is very audacious. Even Richard Dawkins admits he doesn't really know. So in reality, Dawkins is an agnostic, not an atheist. Atheism is a preference. Agnosticism is a position. Well, if you are agnostic, you don't know if God's there, then you don't know that there's any supernatural. It very likely means you don't think a resurrection took place. It, li it means you don't think miracles of any kind took place. Well, the Bible speaks of the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible speaks of the miracles Jesus performed. Well, if you don't think that there were miracles, if you don't think there was a resurrection that took place, then you don't think that the Bible is telling an accurate history. You think the Bible then is just passing on myths and stories that have no real basis in fact. So that's how the logic goes. And so you are right to speak of a presupposition. If you presuppose a skepticism about the very existence of God and the supernatural, then it's going to lead you to be highly suspicious then 
of any ancient writing that speaks of these things. So I think that's how the reasoning goes. And so, you know, it's a closed-minded view. See, I take the view that God almost certainly is there. That's the best explanation for everything, for the existence of the cosmos, for our own religious and theological orientation that all human beings have, the awareness of that higher power, that sense of the divine. After all, we're made in the image of God. That explains it. Uh, And so then it's easier for me to interpret the New Testament. I don't have to imagine a whole bunch of people telling lies, very pious lies, not at all. They are saying what they're saying because it happened. They experienced it. They saw it. They heard it. And so uh, so I have a presupposition, but I think it rests more easily with the evidence than, than the, someone who wants to be suspicious and skeptical and then, in effect, have an argument on his hands with all the evidence. I don't like arguing with the ancient evidence. I'm far more open-minded to being guided by the evidence instead of trying to refute it. So I think that's the real difference between me and uh, someone like Bart Ehrman. Now, I once heard it put like this. You know, as a Christian, I have a broader bias than uh, a, a naturalist would. You know, the, the naturalist is committed to only naturalistic explanations, whereas I'm very okay with naturalistic explanations, but also okay with supernatural explanations should the evidence lead there. So maybe uh, maybe what you're saying is, you're open to all the evidence and wherever all the evidence would lead, whereas someone else might exclude that based on a narrower bias. Yes, I agree with that. That's pretty much what I was saying. And, and you know, some people will point out that, well, you know, lots of scientists are atheists. Well, you want to know something? Lots of them aren't. In fact, it's about 50-50. So it's not like there's an overwhelming majority that are, are materialists or physicalists, or atheists, half half of the science. I'm not saying half of all scientists in the world are Christians, uh, although there are many thousands who are. I mean, look at Francis Collins, head of the Human Genome Project. He's a Christian, and he's an evangelical. But what I am saying is about one-half of all scientists believe in God, believe in the supernatural. Some of them are Christians. Some of them are, you know, of some other faith. But they believe in God. And so why? Because science itself, at certain points, doesn't rest comfortably with a physicalist, materialist understanding. Science itself points toward uh, a divine creator, a superintelligence, a spiritual reality. And I'm an avid reader of science. I find all of that fascinating. Right, right. And Dr. Evans, one thing I noticed is I was listening to a recent edition of Unbelievable Podcast with Justin Brierley, and the atheist was taking the position that, you know, I don't really have a position. I am really an agnostic who doesn't have enough evidence to believe. He was trying to deny the idea that atheism was a position itself. And I, I, I think that's a little harder to deal with when the person is denying they even have a position. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a very good point, uh, because to say you're an atheist, to say uh, there is no God, I believe there is no God, well, that's a position you're taking, but it goes way beyond any evidence. It goes way beyond the requirements of reason. There is plenty of good reason for suspecting that there is a God, and that's what changed uh, Antony Flew. 
as as we all know, I mean, for a long time, for half a century, he was an he was an ardent uh, uh, person arguing for atheism, and the science just overwhelmed him finally, and he changed his mind in that famous presentation in 2004. He was supposed to argue for an atheist position, and he said, you know, I can't. And he then supported a theism and wrote a book entitled There Is a God in 2007, just a few years before he died. And it was the, it was the scientific evidence. It wasn't, a, as he said, it wasn't a religious experience or something like that. He was just overwhelmed by the, what science had learned about the origins of the universe, the Big Bang. He was overwhelmed by what neuroscience was showing ab- ab- about the human brain as well as other arguments relating to ethics and morality and what it means to be human, he just reached the point where he saw the evidence simply required a belief in a divine being. It didn't make him a Christian. Uh, It didn't mean that he believed in the God of the Bible necessarily, although he, he admitted that was coherent. It just forced him into a theistic position. And I give him high marks for being open minded and being guided by the science itself. No, it's a fantastic book. I'm glad you mentioned that, and it's a great book for anyone who wants to read it. Um, Dr. Evans, can I bring you back to the Dead Sea Scrolls and just ask you, you know, for our listeners and for me, what are your favorite sources we can go to to learn about the Dead Sea Scrolls? And you mentioned earlier a volume, I thought, on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Can you repeat that? Well, the volume I was holding in my hand, published by the museum, of the Bible. It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls Fragments in the Museum Collection. Uh, That is a very learned uh, book. It would not be the best book for uh, uh, almost all of your listeners, but it just came out uh, last fall, 2016. There are many simple introductory books on the Dead Sea Scrolls and their value for understanding Jesus and the early church for understanding the canon of the Bible, the canon of Scripture, for understanding early Judaism. Uh, there are many books I can mention. If I may sound immodest, I might mention my own book. Please. Uh, it's very much written for uh, your listeners, people who know just a little bit about the scrolls, but not much. It's called Guide to the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'll repeat that. Guide to the Dead Sea Scrolls. It came out in the year 2010. It's part of a beautiful series of books published by uh, Holman, Broadman and Holman, and uh, it's called the Holman Quick Source series. Holman Quick Source, and it's the Guide to the Dead Sea Scrolls 2010. So I talk about what the scrolls are, where they were found, when, all these different caves. Obviously, my book is now out of date because there's a cave 12 that I didn't know about six, seven years ago. It talks about how the scrolls shed light on Jesus, specific gospel passages, specific passages in Paul and in other New Testament writings. So I think your listeners would find this book very helpful it has some beautiful color pictures of the scrolls, the caves, the archaeology, the Dead Sea region. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's easy to read. It's designed for people who don't really know much about the subject, people who are not experts. Guide to the Dead Sea Scrolls, Thank you. 2010. 
Sounds good. Well, as we close it out, I just wanted to ask you about any more info or any other books you'd suggest to the listeners. Where can people find out more about you, anything you want to highlight, any websites, books, etc.? It's yours, and please be immodest. Tell us all you want about what you're doing because uh, we, we want to get that out there. Well, thank you very much. Uh, people can go to my uh, webpage. It's craigaevans.com. All of my books are listed there. Uh, one book I might mention, it's a little bit off topic, but some of your listeners are probably seekers. Uh, some of your listeners might be uh, newish, youngish Christians and aren't real sure uh, what it is they believe or how to share their faith with others. And I have a book that's called God Speaks, What He Says, What He Means, and uh, it's available. It's published by Worthy Publishers, 2015. It's easy to find on the Internet and to order it. It's God Speaks, What He Says, What He Means. And that will help your readers, your listeners, to understand what the Bible is exactly, how it came about. But, you know, here's what it does. It answers the question of why should I pay any attention to an old book? Because a lot of the millennials today think, look, the Bible's interesting. It was valuable a long time ago. But what's its value today? How does an old book speak to our modern world? Well, you know what? That's a fair question. And so God Speaks is addressing that question. So there might be people out there who think, look, I'm spiritual, I believe in God, but I just don't know what to believe about God. Uh, This book, God Speaks, I think will be very helpful for a person like that. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show again, Dr. Evans. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to be with you. And uh, we're going to be keeping our eyes peeled for that cave 13, 14, 15, whatever. Absolutely. (laughs) And bringing you back on every chance we get. Very good. Hey, well, uh, keep in touch. Thanks for all your work. Thanks. I'm just so thankful for what you do to help us that are on the ground doing ministry. And uh, we're thankful. And, uh, man, I wish I had time to ask you about your favorite thing about HBU. But uh, I'm excited that you're down there. I guess you want do you do you want a ten second shameless plug for HBU or anything like that? Well, you know we're doing a lot of interesting things here. We have a new Master of Divinity program, and so we got some top scholars teaching courses. But we also have a great relationship with a mega church, Second Baptist, right here in in uh, Houston, and so we have people on their staff teaching practical theology courses. So it's a great uh, synergy uh, working together. So I'm very excited about it. But, of course, we have a hugely uh, robust apologetics program mm-hmm. with people mm-hmm. like Absolutely. William Lane Craig, uh, Mary Jo Sharp, Mike Lycona, Philip Talon, and I could go on and on, some big stars who are part of our apologetics program. So it is fun to be here at HBU, and I think, I think the school is only going to get bigger and better in the years that lie ahead. Well, thanks again so much for coming on The God Solution. Thanks, Dr. Evans. You bet. See you, guys. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Craig Evans. You can get both parts of this interview at godsolutionshow.com under the Past Shows tab. Next week, we're going to be interviewing Greg Kokel of Stand to Reason about his new book, The Story of Reality. You don't want to miss it. If you've never taken a step to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I implore you to do that this morning. 
The evidence is compelling that he really is who he says he is, that he died for your sins and mine, and that he rose again. And the Bible is very clear that only through faith in him can we be saved. I encourage you right now, if you've never taken that step, to take that step to put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, to believe in him for your salvation. You can even verbalize that right now in prayer, saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, and that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Please come into my life as Savior and Lord. Well, if you took that step, welcome to the family of God. I'm excited that you took that step. And if you already know Jesus, please keep sharing him with those around you. The world desperately, desperately needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, like I said, you can get this show and last week's show and all of our shows at GodSolutionShow.com under the Past Shows tab. That's GodSolutionShow.com. Again, like I said, you don't want to miss next week's interview with Greg Kokel about his best-selling book, The Story of Reality. It's already a bestseller in Christian apologetics and Christian discipleship in many different areas. So you don't want to miss this upcoming interview. It will be phenomenal. Thanks so much for listening. Get excited about all that is going on in the world today. There's lots of bad news, but there's also lots of good news. And there's a ton of good news in the area of apologetics. I'm glad we got to hear some of it today. And stay tuned for more of it in the coming weeks. Well, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at godsolutionshow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.